So we're just going to dive right in, um, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll introduce our audience to what we're doing here. Um, I'm James Cochran. This is Super Together, a special episode featuring <laughs> Reverend Quinn Eggeseeker Mack. Actually, she's she's not a reverend. She is a licensed professional counselor. Um, she has a practice in what is it? Is it Kansas City, Brookside? Where is it? What's our state? Yeah, yeah, Brookside. So, a kind of little community within Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, and so um, she really is a specialist. She completed a um, sex certificate program through a University of Michigan. I don't know. You want to mm-hmm. talk to us about what that is? Yeah, so I am a licensed professional counselor. Um, my graduate program training is in couples and family therapy. And then after graduation, I enrolled in a program through the University of Michigan, which um, focused on learning how to do sexuality education and sexuality therapy. So now I practice as a couples and sex therapist um, in Brookside. Cool. Um, and so... Someone who was, say, um, dealing with some kind of dissatisfaction in their sex life mm-hmm. or dissatisfaction in their couple's life, uh, they yeah. might say, you know, I should give Quinn a call and get connected with her so that she can tell me what's what. Yeah, I mean, dissatisfaction can definitely be part of it. But another big part of what I see in my practice is people who are already in a pretty good spot sexually and relationally who are just really looking to expand upon it um, and find new ways to enjoy their bodies and their partner's bodies and their relationships. Mm. So it's kind of a, a smattering really of, yeah. of what comes through. Well, uh, Quinn, thank you so much for joining us on Super Together. Um, we've, yeah. we've got Quinn uh, communicating with us by phone because we are in the midst of uh, this bug that's going around. And uh, Quinn and I actually went to grad school together um, all those years ago, and uh, so we're, we're both ruse, uh, go ruse. Um, and uh, I saw on Facebook that Quinn had had at least some awareness of the TV show Love is Blind. And for those of our <laughs> regular listeners to Super Together, you'll know that last week we opened up a two-part series on the show Love is Blind, where we really just kind of dove into this Netflix series, the premise of which is, um, can these relationships form successfully before any real uh, physical attraction is developed? So these people connect and interact by these um, sensory obscuring pods where these people, um, you know, are, are connected to each other, but only through conversation. And then they start to build their physical relationship that you know, happens with varying degrees of success. Um, and so I figured, um, you know, we'll wrap up that episode this Friday. Um, but I thought it might be valuable to get a sex therapist's perspective on how some of the finer points of this show really call us to ask questions about our own lives. Um, one of the questions I have is this, um, I I was once uh, in conversation with a doctor and, uh, we were talking about this idea of, you know, fear of blood and, you know, do how, how big of a hindrance is that to people becoming doctors? And essentially what he says is like, if that's the only reason you're not a doctor, you should be a doctor because that's really something you can get past. So I guess my question is, you know, in these relationships, the attachment is first built without any real attraction being present. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the question is how, 
much of a hindrance does attraction need to be in a person? So we see, for example, Jessica Mm -hmm. and Mark, where, you know, she says expressly, not only to the camera, but also to Mark, um, you know, this guy's not my type. He, you know, I'm usually attracted to a bigger, taller, broader guy. um, And he's, you know, smaller than than what I'm used to. So um, I guess my question is, like, how seriously should people in relationships take these kinds of hangups? Are they deal breakers? Are they things we can find a way to get past? How do you see that showing up in the work you do? Um, yeah, so the answer to that, I think, is really variable, um, as I think the importance of it is really going to vary even from couple to couple. Mm-hmm. So if a couple places, you know, high priority on attraction and like sexual chemistry and sexual interactions and behaviors, you know, not being attracted to your partner, obviously, that's going to pose some issues. Whereas if you have a couple who is decidedly, you know, very low desire, no big interest in sex. Um, it might not be as big of a problem for them. So, I mean, I think that really is kind of variable in that nature. But, I mean, one thing with the Jessica and Mark situation that I found really interesting was that it wasn't her lack of attraction to him that kept her from committing necessarily, mm-hmm. but it was all of her commitment hangups that I feel probably influenced the lack of attraction. Yeah. Because whenever we have like anxiety and all of those walls built up, it's really hard, especially as a woman, to access that place of desire and arousal. So mm. that potential could have been there, but it seemed like some of those psychological, social factors, i.e., he's 10 years younger than me, I'm used to dating consultants. Yeah. Um, those, I think, really probably skewed her, her vision even more so. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting idea that you're describing, which is that I think that we, in our brains, conceptualize you know, the sort of emotional, relational mm-hmm. kinds of connections as separate from physical attraction. And part of what you're saying is that they're, they're connected. I think so. I think for most people, they are at least. And I mean, don't get me wrong. We we all tend to have a type, you know, a quote unquote type, um, which tends to be fairly stable. And that's not to say just because you've always been attracted to tall, dark and handsome that you can't be attracted to shorter, you know, with blonde hair and, you know, above average looking, you know, we have some flexibility within that, but we do tend to have a, a type that we default to, that we find ourselves being increasingly drawn to. And so for her, what I heard a lot was her pointing out all these reasons why he's not her type, which I can't, I can imagine can only reinforce that disconnect, right? Yeah. And allowing her to access that, that potential like desire or attraction potential. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that for some couples, you know, that, that physical connection is going to be a high priority. If they have mm-hmm. a value system where they say, you know, I need to find somebody that physically we're just firing on all cylinders and we're connecting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you mentioned, so that's going to vary from person to person. Do you often find, or is it ever the case where, um, you know, you say you have a couple that comes in and they just say, you know, I'm just, I'm really not attracted to my partner anymore. Or, you know, I just, I don't feel mm-hmm. that same way anymore. How is that? How would you negotiate that kind of process? It's hard. Um, I think the first question I always need to look at is, you know, were you ever attracted to them? You know, kind of going back through the couple's history and seeing, you know, has there ever been a capacity for this? Um, What was that attraction, you know, based on? Was it an emotional attraction? Was it an intellectual attraction? Was it a sexual attraction? We can be attracted to different caveats of people. 
And I think whenever, historically speaking, a couple has that foundation there, it's a lot easier to reestablish mm. than if you have a couple who says, well, I've never been attracted to him or I've never been attracted to her or, you know, they've never done it for me. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. okay, um, that's a you know completely different, different conversation. And it, again, it comes back to reprioritization. You know, people might not have everything for us all at once. And to think that they do, I think can be a little unrealistic um, at given points and times in our life. Yeah, I I love this idea that that it isn't fair or realistic for us to expect our partners to be everything that we need to the degree that we need it at all times through the course of our relationship. it's, It's so much pressure. Yeah, yeah. It's so much pressure. Yeah, so I think that even just saying, you know, that if, if we're going through a season um, where mm-hmm. there is a lack of attraction or a barrier to attraction, um, so first mm-hmm. recognizing that there are different dimensions to attraction and physicality is just yeah. one of them. And then also yeah. recognizing that it, it might be okay for us to be, mm-hmm. you know, not all that attracted to our partner in this moment because, you know, mm-hmm. that attraction is something that can shift and change. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and for women even, you know, attraction towards different, you know, towards your partner or towards different types can vary based on our hormonal fluctuations, you know, month to month. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a built-in fluidity really yeah. with that. Just that's natural. Yeah. I think that that's helpful for us to not recognize these things as like fixed and disconnected. Um, that, you know, we are, um, we are changing organisms and mm-hmm. that part of the consequence of that change is recognizing how we can, um, you know, pay attention to the spaces that we need to give our attention to and then release these things that maybe fall outside of our control. Um, yeah. And, and when something like sexual attraction even is running down, maybe that's the point in time, you know, in your relationship where you really lean into the intellectual or the emotional attraction side to, to keep that connection there in just a different way. Sure. So uh, here's another question I've got in this, in this, I, it, it may be connected to our first one, but certainly connected to mm-hmm. what we um, observe in Love is Blind. So everything on this show happens fast, and that's by design. Yeah. It's contrived by the producers. Um, now, yeah. you know, they, they keep throwing around this experiment language like, oh, well, this is different than anything else. So, yeah, you might develop this attraction differently. I, I guess I'm I'm curious from a, you know, attachment to relationship perspective, is there is how do you see speed factoring into all of this, especially when it, I'm thinking about the physical intimacy? Because you see some couples where it's like, you know, the first night that they have together, um, they're being sexually intimate. And then you see some that it mm-hmm. takes a lot longer for that sexual intimacy to unfold. So yeah. is there a good way of understanding of like when and if it's too soon to be sexually intimate? Are there conversations or questions we can be asking ourselves to determine like, am I ready for, you know, a sexual connection with this person? How do you, you know, help clients answer those kinds of questions? So, gosh, yeah. So with the whole show being done so speedily, it definitely rushes. Um, I think a lot of people's decisions and with that too, I think we see some of that, you know, associated fallout, but I mean, base, I mean, baseline, if you want to have sex with your partner, if your partner wants to have sex with you and you're both, you know, have the wherewithal to consent, then I would say, you know, sex is on the table. But for some people, um, there's a lot more that plays into that decision to have sex just other than just wanting to have sex. So, mm. you know, some people, you know, well, I think a lot of people need feelings of safety and comfort. You know, some people have 
insecurity or, you know, as we saw, there wasn't a lot of discussion about people's sexual history. So when we walk into those situations, it's someone that we are engaged to in the show without that information. I mean, we're missing a really big piece of very important information to help us navigate those sexual encounters. And I think that's a lot of kind of what we see showing up between the couples and how they relate to, you know, should I or shouldn't I have sex? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, and it strikes me that, um, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, insecurity, sexual history, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some people described this, this question of values, but we, we see a lot of, uh, or I guess what more, it'd be more appropriate to say we don't see a lot of conversation around, you know, what are our sexual expectations? What do we, what do we yeah. really want from each other? You know, do we, it's almost like there is a, um, this assumption that everybody is operating, uh, under the same set of rules. And, and, and I think oh, yeah. what I'm, what I, what you observe in the show is that that's not the case. Um, everybody comes to the table with their own set of rules. And the only way we can effectively navigate that is to be in kind of healthy conversation with each other. Yeah. And again, too, it's, you know, it's funny that these couples had these really, you know, in-depth, you know, emotionally intimate, soul-bearing conversations in the pod. And, you know, I don't know if it was maybe just edited out or not, but I didn't hear any communication about, you know, sexual roles and expectations Mm -hmm. and and what that would even look like or, you know, what value does sex or, you know, physical intimacy play into a relationship? Because effectively, you could have two people that have just fundamentally mismatched levels of desire that fall in love, partner up, get married, and then sex is going to be a constant source of of tension, you know, in the relationship because it wasn't discussed. Yeah. You can be emotionally compatible and not sexually compatible. Yeah. Um, And I think that's kind of what, what we saw in some in some regards. Yeah. One of the things that I, I mentioned to Ginger um, in as we discussed this was, you know, they before the couples, you know, sort of rejoin their lives together, they say uh, the hosts say, yeah, we've done everything that you, we can to make you as 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 prepared as you possibly can be to have these interactions. And I'm sitting there thinking like you, there's like eight (laughs) conversations that should have happened that haven't happened yet. And that that as you know, there needs to be some facilitation of. So uh, one of these conversations that we see is with, um, or that we don't see is with uh, Carlton and diamond. Um, And this is, you know, early on in the show, one of the most intense um, and, and honestly predictable conflicts um, is, yeah. you know, Carlton uh, describes himself as uh, fluid in terms of his sexual orientation um, yeah. and doesn't disclose this, um, even though he sort of discloses it to the camera, names that he's not disclosing it, that he's worried about disclosing it, um, and then presents it after he's already engaged to Diamond. Um, and then mm-hmm. everything just kind of devolves from there into yeah. name, name calling and defensiveness and hurt feelings and all this type of stuff. So I guess, yeah. you know, neither felt, neither seemed very prepared for that conversation as evidenced by the fact that they didn't have it ahead of time. And then when they did have it, it ended up ending their relationship. So what does it look like to have a sexual history conversation? Like, how do you, how do you sit down with a partner and say like, Hey, let's, let's like lay it on the table in a way that doesn't, you know, that means we're both coming with the information that we need, but we're not, you know, hurting each other's feelings or feeling shamed. Like how do how, what does it look like to do that? Well, you know, I think whenever people talk about their sexual history in and of itself, I mean, it can feel a little shameful. 
Um, you know, there can be hurt feelings. I don't, I don't think that a lot of people want to think about, talk about, envision the person they love um, being sexual with anybody else. It's just not a comfortable thing to think about. Um, and I think that's a lot of what we saw with, with, um, oh gosh, I just forgot his name. Carlton. What was his name? Carlton. I wanted to say Clifton. That's not it. With Carlton and Diamond is, you know, he had this understanding, but what I thought was interesting isn't that he didn't share it because he didn't think it was relevant. It's he didn't share it because he was afraid he was going to be rejected for it. And just for me watching that, I thought it was so, it was so sad, you know, and it was so, so heartbreaking, you know, just the absolute vulnerability and fear and pain that he was going through. Um, But I mean, to have those conversations, I think, you know, there's kind of like a bare minimum that needs to be discussed, but then there's also an ideal. So I think bare minimum is, you know, sexual health practices. So, you know, are you on birth control? What type of protective measures do you take? Um, you know, do you have a history of STDs or STIs? Are you um, an intravenous drug user? So things that can directly affect somebody's health and yeah. um, because of being sexual with them, I think is, is absolute bare minimum for consent. But we have to think against bigger pictures. So while that's bare minimum, like where's the conversation about like sexual history? What do you like? What turns you on? What turns you off? What do you want? What don't you want? What type of role do you like to play? What kind of relationship structure do you want? Are you wanting to be monogamous? Do you want to be open? Do you want to swing? Um, and all these other really nuanced caveats of mm-hmm. our emotional, sexual, erotic orientation need to be discussed so that our partner can be understanding, but also consenting to what those needs and what those desires would look like. Yeah. I I like this idea of, um, you know, there's a bare minimum of, Mm -hmm. we need to be able to approach this from a standpoint of um, consent of like, we both have to be to know what we're getting into in terms of health decisions, um, what the sort of ultimate consequence and impact of this interaction is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. But but recognizing that 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 doesn't necessarily represent the fullness of what a healthy sexual mm-hmm. relationship can be, that there is a broader Absolutely. conversation that can happen about, you know, what do we really want out of our sexual relationship? And to me, I think yeah. that the biggest disservice that the romantic comedy industry has done to our culture <laughs> is to give us this impression that sex is easy and it happens sort of by default and automatically. That, you know, you, you, meet, yeah. you meet at a bar, you fall into each other's arms, and then you have this mm-hmm. terrific, happy sexual relationship from there on out. Uh, but that in yeah. reality, like to have a really healthy, flourishing sexual relationship takes a lot of intentionality, a lot of communication, a lot of misfires, to be super honest, like a lot of, of, of we're going to do it wrong. We're going to try this and it's not going to work. You know, I'm going to say this and your feelings are going to get hurt. Um, and just the recognition yeah. that that's okay, um, I think is something that, that is missing. It's yeah. And it's missing in a lot of the cultural scripts around what, you know, healthy sexuality looks like. Um, sorry, it, I mean, it, it really is. And I think a lot of times too, people were just, you know, fundamentally equipped. It's not things that we are taught. And then I think if you also bear in mind kind of the bigger, um, like heteronormative tone mm-hmm. of our culture is a lot of these conversations that need to be happening, especially look at couples like, um, like Carlton and Diamond, you know, who Carlton, I believe identified as pansexual, you know, people who are not heterosexual aren't given like representation right. and when there isn't that representation there also isn't a form for communication and conversation about these aspects of self so you know we're already 
not armed to have these conversations, generally speaking. But then when we add on all these additional layers, it just becomes even more difficult. And then paired with misunderstanding and um, mm-hmm. you know biases, it, it gets complicated really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Quinn, um, this is just the first of what I hope is um, a long-running series of conversations about how we can be um, better sexual citizens. I don't know if that's a phrase or not, but I feel like it ought to be. Sexual citizenship. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, at a minimum, um, a broader understanding of sexual health, sexual ethics, those types of things. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you'll be a regular contributor here on super together. Um, but in any case, um, any parting thoughts, questions, or concerns that you would have related to love is blind, the show, how people can, um, continue to uh, connect with you and your work, anything else you'd want to share? Yeah, so I guess parting thoughts for couples would be the importance of knowing your expectations and also clearly communicating those expectations because a lot of times we hold our our partner to standards that we've never expressed, which kind of sets us up for a a lose-lose situation. Um, And then just in general, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always um, find me on my website, which is qemcounseling.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at QEM Counseling. All right. Well, Quinn, thanks a lot. And uh, we will look forward to connecting with you again soon. Very good. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Thanks, everybody. Be well.